So there is an abundance of resources in our inner soul system that we can use to help rebalance life on earth. And I don't believe this is a choice. This is not even a choice anymore because the the risks or uncertainty of the outcome we may still be a little unsure of but the impact if we are right about the worst case scenario the impact is catastrophic if we are wrong about the worst case scenario all we've done is elevated a whole bunch of new technologies created more efficiencies created a spacefaring capability it's all good either way and the economic development is awesome Welcome to the Capability Amplifier, the show for business owners and entrepreneurs who want high-performance upgrades for their brains, bodies, and bank accounts. All right, Jim Caravalla from Offworld, thank you for being here today. Thank you. Morning. Good. So I thought for our listener, the first thing we should do is do the short commercial. What is Offworld? What are you guys up to? Well, Offworld's ambition um, from its founders and the, the growing team is to build infrastructure in space so that civilization can expand out into the solar system and beyond and also build industrial processes and capability in space to help rebalance the Earth uh, ecosystem. But our challenge was that um, uh, we could never find a business model that works beyond geostationary or Earth orbit facing outwards, uh, at least not today. So we decided to treat Earth as a celestial body and build our autonomous industrial robotic workforce of AI-powered industrial robots to operate on Earth in the mining, construction, infrastructure repair, seabed operations, and other sectors to do the dangerous jobs with a high degree of collaborative intelligence of swarm robots working in the hundreds of thousands to remove people out of harm's way and to enable an order of magnitude drop in CapEx and OpEx for these industrial processes. So whilst we're building our space program on the back of commercial contracts uh, here on Earth, thanks to the mining and construction sectors, we're taking people out of harm's way and building our platform for expansion into the solar system. So you've got a great prototyping platform, an opportunity to test everything out, get paid while you're doing it, right? prove the model, and then the big picture plan is launch... Drop these things down, could be on, on the moon, it could be in Mars or on Mars or beyond. Absolutely. And there's clearly tons of manufacturing opportunities and and the list goes on. And we're going to get into that, the monetization. T- t- totally. And, and in fact, so our vision is expansion into solar system and, and uh, heading to the stars. Our business model is a massive disruption of century and a half old heavy industrial processes, those architectures. So our intention is to become a multi-billion dollar cap company here on earth and use our residual income to underwrite our own pilot projects into space and then lead the capital rounds to start building that infrastructure up there. Very interesting. So we're definitely going to talk about where the money is in a little bit. But before we do that, I think the next and the really the most important thing is, so who is Jim Caravalla and where did this idea come from? Oh, well, I've always been uh, absolutely passionate about getting humans off the surface of the earth and out into space in a completely frictionless manner. Uh, actually, and that started when I was a, barely a teenager, uh, having read Malthus, the uh, 17th century economist, 
on his closed systems and the limits to economic growth. Why don't you uh, explain that for people who might not understand it? Ba- basically, the, the, the premise was that, well, if you're in any closed economy or system, at some point, you're going to reach imbalances of equilibrium, limits to certain resources, running out of space for your effluent or waste products, and literally population expansion and growth. And that he was talking more in terms of regional boundaries, but being a complete space nut, as many of us you know, were and as a kid and uh, still are at heart, I immediately expanded that into the earth and space arena and realized that conceptually we are in a closed system if we just stayed on this one planet. So I became from a very early age very passionate about all of the industrial processes, the technologies and the cultural motivations involved in expanding beyond Earth's atmosphere and and moving out there. So that's when I I basically took my studies into that field and started on at an early age in the early 90s, launching Western spacecraft on Russian and Ukrainian launch vehicles from Plesetsk and Baikonur. So you've done real space stuff then? Yes, yes, for, for, for many years. All right, so why don't you tell me your most interesting space story? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean... That you think is relevant to off-world. Well, you know, it's... Um, I, I guess there, there, is, there are so many narratives that I could raise either on the, the, the technology issues or the cultural issues. I think, you know, what, what's... Here, I'll tell you what I'm looking for. Hmm. I want... Uh, I'm looking for the spark, an inspirational spark where you had an aha and, and you were able to connect the dots. So let's go back to, like, obviously at a very early age, you see so you read the book... And then you're like many of us, we're about the same age. You're like, yes, it's space. I need to do that. You fell in love with that. And then you focused your studies there. Mm. So you built the credibility, the the knowledge that was necessary. But tell me a story of where you connected the dots. You had your aha and you knew that this was the thing you had to do. So on Earth, we're, we're currently generating about 17 to 18 terawatts of power or consuming uh, and generating that uh, as a civilization. We're currently at about a 7 to 8 billion person population and we're set to expand another 2 billion to mid-century, plus or minus, and maybe level out at about 11 billion as current predictions go by the end of the century. However, the consumption of energy is expected to double, triple, or increase even further, as, of course, people pursue elevated standards of living. Consumption of meat from plant increases as GDP per capita increases in in any nation state. And the burdens and strains on the agricultural, the water systems, and the energy systems currently, which are predominantly hydrocarbon-based, increases and cascades. So, Many of the solutions that we see here on Earth today that are advocated, particularly around renewables, solar or wind to a great extent, and then others using hydrogen as storage and and trying to wean ourselves off the coal and uh, oil and gas sourced energy sources. So to a certain extent, that has some validity, except the mining and then the extraction and processing multi-trillion dollar sectors that are then necessary to build 
all of those power plants on Earth and all the cities that house those new populations and the transport systems and all the thermodynamic outputs of those mass transit systems and, and simply the energy from either heating our cities or cooling our cities with air conditioning, we are pumping out so much energy into the atmosphere that the thermodynamic leak into our environment from the what's called the Anthropocene you know, of human activity is impacting our environment. And there's no question about it. There's no question about that. So some of the dots that start to emerge are, in my view, Earth sits in a habitable zone of our star. It's the only habitable zone of our star where water is between uh, freezing and boiling point. So water can flow freely. It is the elixir for carbon-based compounds and reactions, which form the basis of organic chemistry and then uh, amino acid and protein-based life. Outside of our habitable zone, we know that every star has its own habitable zone. We don't know if every star has a super Earth-like planet, but there seems to be good chances that there are. But we know that every star has that. But in our solar system, uh, apart from Mars being possibly on the edge of it, this is our only real uh, basis. Earth has a great magnetic field. It has an iron core that allows us to uh, shield the life-bearing properties on this planet from a lot of the solar radiation. It is the Goldilocks home uh, of, of our entire world. This to us is like, it's like a national reserve. It's like the most beautiful green meadows we could imagine. Would we go and start building an aluminium plant or a cement processing plant or an oil refinery right in the middle of our meadows or our forest? We, we wouldn't tend to do that. We would try to keep that green. Not if we had a choice. Not if sense. we had a choice, exactly. So my thesis is let's treat Earth as a nature reserve. Let's take the heavy industry off the planet the heavy processing industries, the heavy energy generating industries. Let's take them off planet. Let's not worry about the inefficiencies of additional transfers of solar power, solar energy to electronic uh, energy to then re reformulating that to so microwaves. you're basically saying down. if we can generate electricity on the moon and broadcast it back to Earth, we don't care it, about efficiency necessarily. It, it, exactly. Okay, uh, got you it. Know, whether it's in space, on the lunar surface or, or wherever, the sun is... Um, has got at least 1 billion years of uh, useful, safe lifetime ahead of us, 5 billion years of absolute life. And we've got all the energy we need. We've actually got all the material resources we need in the asteroid belt. Once you're at the asteroid belt, the uh, delta V or the relative energy you need to then jump from asteroid to asteroid is uh, relatively small. So you've got all the, the material resources you need, both metals, hydrocarbons, uh, and volatiles. So there is an abundance, as many of your audience will resonate with that, there is an abundance of resources in our inner solar system that we can use to help rebalance life on Earth. And I don't believe this is a choice. This is not even a choice anymore because the, the risks or uncertainty of the outcome, we may still be a little unsure of, but the impact, if we are right, about the worst case scenario, the impact is catastrophic. If we are wrong about the worst case scenario, all we've done is elevated a whole bunch of new technologies, created more efficiencies, created a spacefaring capability. It's all good either way. And the economic development is awesome. So 
part of the connecting of the dots was that as we built our infrastructure over these centuries and millennia, we have either used slave labor here on earth or forced labor or low-cost blue-collar workforces. As we go out into space, the, the bridging era of building the new frontiers in the inner solar system are going to call on the industrial astronaut or the government astronaut to start leading some of these activities. But the anomaly is that this kind of personnel is the most expensive workforce you can imagine. It's the wrong end of the scale for infrastructure development. So we need a new kind of workforce. And that's why Offworld is developing this modular, industrial, intelligent, robotic platform where we can undertake the entire gamut of industrial process from extraction and mining, processing, fabrication, assembly, manufacturing, that end-to-end industrial toolkit so that we can elevate human well-being on Earth, take people out of harm's way, and build our space system for going out and developing these um, infrastructures in space. So it looked to me, because you've got a a model, we're at the um, Near Future Summit right now, and they look like little bulldozers, and they've got detachable heads on them. So I think you described it as like a Lego construction kit for mining. Exactly. And so you've got this base platform with caterpillar treads on it, and the little robots, they look like they're maybe eight or ten feet by six, eight feet wide, something like that, at least the ones that are here. That, that's, that was a little bigger than uh, the, the actual modules. I mean, the, the, way, the way we structured the architecture is it's a common operating system with uh, common control parameters and modular convolutional neural nets. What's that mean? So basically, um, in robotics, we can have hard-coded control that our engineers program. And we can have neural nets, which are basically self-learning environments. So each unique platform has its own brain, its own ability to reason and gather data and then send it off to a main processor and then share it. So it's kind of like the Borg from Star Trek. Well, well, actually, it's a, it's a, um, a little more impressive than the Borg. Firstly, we're a lot more stylish looking. And it does look cool. <laughs> I kind of want to have one just to have, you know. Right. It's sort of um, like, what kind of drill heads do I want on my pet robot right, guy? Exactly, here? exactly. But but the modularity. So the modularity is broken down into across several categories of functional system. So we have mobility, and the mobility can be tracks, it can be wheels, it can be legs, it can be impellers for the underwater series, it could be thrusters or attitude control for the space units. So mobility is one axis. We have then subsystem and platform, and then we have tooling. So with that level of modularity, with each of those uh, control architectures having their own uh, sets of operating system components, their own neural nets, we've developed the architecture to allow us to develop and build the machine learning components very rapidly so that we can then optimize any tool set and we take third-party tools, whether they're Makita's, Bosch, or uh, anything else. We take and modify third-party tools with our universal interfaces, put them onto our arms, and allow those systems to then work together in hundreds of units, hundreds of robots working collaboratively together in a large mining ore body, on a construction site, 
or any environment where we can now uh, take people out and have these robots work in those difficult environments. Very nice. So, and you've got this prototyped working how long until you've got mines filled with your mm-hmm. devices? Well, we're, we're doing our first multi-bot mine deployment uh, in the second half of 2020 and then scaling out to hundreds in late 21. We're already talking with multiple customers. So by about end of 21, we should be ramping up production to the hundreds and then the thousands in 2022. And as we move up uh, each order of magnitude, the relative production costs drop as we scale our manufacturing. And with each day of operation, our deep learning systems and our whole machine learning architecture is gathering data. It's gathering learning. The algorithms are getting more sophisticated and our uh, centralized hive mind is simulating all sorts of scenarios with that new data of soil types, of machine interfacing, of thermodynamic uh, responses to the environment. And these systems are becoming more capable in those narrow fields of industrial endeavor uh, day by day. It's a win-win situation. So you're able to take <clears throat> small installations and extrapolate as these things start learning, gathering a ton of data. And presumably, like if you've got a mine in, in a sandy area, a clayish area, a rocky area, um, you're going to be able to do all kinds of intelligent... Uh, you're absolutely spot on. And exactly that. So we can then normalize for one particular characteristic and tool set. And now if it's in different environments, we've got a comparative matrix of different responses. Well, this kind of tool works well on harder rock, but on soft rock, you need a different configuration. And this is the efficiencies. These are the speeds. This is the power used. This is the heat generated. These are the cracks and and geotactic anomalies that start to appear. The opportunity for capturing data on how the environment behaves, how the materials we're trying to construct actually uh, solidify and firm up and form, how our machines operate, that that richness of data, and then the application and the utility of our algorithms on that is going to be off-world's gold dust. That's going to be our real opportunity. Sounds pretty Blade Runner, man. Uh, no, it's gonna it's gonna be awesome, and right. you know, and and there are I'm sure there are a lot of folks in the audience who wonder about well, when does this all go awry? When, when does this all go wrong? And the things rung amok and, and we get Terminator or Blade Runner scenarios. You just have, have self-destruction uh, modules built in. and <laughs> Well, well you, you know, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of ways. And, and in fact, the, the entire, I mean, to, to be honest, the whole field of artificial intelligence is a little bit of a misnomer. It's, um, it's such a broad field. You might as well just call it intelligence, whether it's artificial or natural or symbiotic. The, the, real, the real paradigm that we're dealing with in this generation, in this age, is machine learning. And the predominant forms of machine learning that we are involved with are reinforcement learning, imitation learning, and deep learning. And what are the, why don't you give us the, a yeah. brief description of what each one means? So, so basically, imitation learning, I mean, imitation learning and reinforcement learning are particularly uh, fascinating because in many ways, we reinforce the children we bring up. We reinforce them with good behaviors. And we offer imitation learning to set by example. 
So one is I'll give you a prize if you behave nicely, and the other one is do as I do exactly and learn. So uh, uh, right, and so mentoring when, when, essentially. When, so when we're populating our neural nets with patterns to emulate, we basically show them what to do. They're, they're recording on on video. The robots uh, are watching. We may undertake some actions and repeat it several times. So you can move the little robot we, arm and say, do it like this, do it exactly. like this, do it like this. And there's uh, feedback. and Totally. And then we can use our hard-coded algorithms to teach the neural nets. What do you have to give them to uh, incentivize them to behave? Do you have like uh, Oreos, Hershey's Kisses and or Oreos? Oreos okay. uh, popular. And, uh, I mean, it's basically just uh, just uh, digital credit. I mean, right. it's li- literally anything you want. They so can spend it at the uh, casino that the, night. The, right, so right. We're going to gambling addiction problems for the, robots. The, that's, that's true. I'm yeah. sorry to go off on a tangent. But in many ways, so we, we can... We can create reinforcement boundaries and parameters so that they can take the imitation learning source material, continue repeating those processes. We reinforce the positive outcomes. We dissuade the anomalies. And we allow that to continue to develop and learn so that it goes beyond human performance and then can operate efficiently and effectively and start making its own decisions in that very narrow field of endeavor. So uh, now these neural nets will be great at maybe refining the amount of weld flux you use welding two pipes together, but maybe try and get the same neural, exactly the same neural net to, to effectively cut a girder. Yeah, maybe, maybe it'll figure it out. It will figure it out in, in, good enough time, but it's not an efficient use. So we we actually keep our neural nets very narrowly defined, very tightly defined, and just have a modular architecture of them. So we can stack them as we we like. And then we can um, mix and match nets uh, and even cross-correlate them. So we've, we've got a bit of a fast track in enabling our systems to actually populate our neural nets or autonomously. So we can go a little bit more ahead of the curve And that's giving us the opportunity to undertake hundreds of industrial processes with these robots. Great. So let's talk a little bit about the economics of this thing. So it seems as though this is a big picture, long-term plan. So what kind of people are investing in your business? And can I ask, what have you raised so far and what's the current uh, plan for capital? Yeah. So right now we have we don't have any investment. So the founders started the company off on their own back with donuts and chance, and so you guys have all had some exits then, yeah. and you're self financing. Yeah. So well, well, we we were at the start, but we very quickly got commercial customers. So, oh, so you pre-sold your services yes. based on a great story. Yes. So actually, when um, in my previous venture, I spent ten years trying to do a little bit of the origins of this particular phase was I was focusing on building uh, ice mining rigs on the South Pole of the Moon to extract the water ice, convert it to LOX hydrogen, put it into propellant depots, and build a lunar transport system between Earth and low Earth orbit and the lunar surface. That uh, I spent 10 years uh, undertaking that. Couldn't raise any of the 18 billion to get that started, but in, um, eventually managed to meet up with His Highness Sheikh Maktoum, the ruler of Dubai, and we formed a consortium to build a large space-based solar power program. In the end, that fell apart. And, and at the end, I thought, well, 
you know what? It's taken so long to try and raise money from a billionaire. And even when you do, it falls apart afterwards. Right. So right. In, the, in the end, I decided, well, the only way to do it is to become a billionaire yourself and then uh, underwrite those pilot projects. So that's why I formed Offworld, brought a team together to execute it, formulated the machine intelligent robotic workforce architecture, and then went out and got clients for it. So you uh, talk a little bit about how you created that message that, and how long did it take from the time you walked in the door or had the relationship until someone raised their hand, wrote out a check and said, I'm in. Six weeks. That's a great story. Yeah. So tell me a story. So we, we managed to, we were, we were very lucky in that the, the sector that we hit first was the mining sector. And our hypothesis was proved correct that the mining industry worldwide is, has their backs against the wall. The, the demand is growing up. Despite fluctuations that the commodity markets experience, the demand is going up for material. The ore bodies are becoming harder to locate because all of the surface ones have mostly been uh, grabbed up in the last century or two. Um, and the grade of the available ore bodies is lowering, meaning the concentration of actual mineral versus ore. Right. So the bottom line is we got to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. It's right. more dangerous. Yep. And we've got all sorts of regulations and rules, which are probably, you know, all in humanity's best interest yep. right now. You yep. don't want to abuse the workers. So the variables that you're dealing with are worse as well as the concentration of the ore. So exactly. it just makes sense to have a robot army out there running 24 seven. And if some rocks fall on them and they break, well, Other, their buddies can dig them out and they'll carry on. Yeah, exactly that. And we found that we can, um, we can slash the capex and opex of against conventional operations by well over an order of magnitude. That is revolutionary because now what that means is thousands of smaller ore bodies that were previously uneconomical become viable uh, prospects. So we can change the entire nature of the mining sector. So places that we started digging low grade, but it's not cost effective. Now we can throw the little robots in there and it's like, eh, just right. let them do their thing. And Conventionally, it's uh, yeah, approaching a billion dollars to open up a new ore body. You need uh, housing, you need processing plants, you need power and energy and all of this uh, capability. Well, we can crack open ore body with an end-to-end -end swarm robotic system for about $12 million. It's revolutionary. And that changes the nature of the game. And with our undersea and deep sea extensions of the platform, we can go for very clean seabed mining and extraction as well as cleanup. Because one of the dangers of the way the uh, seabed mining is being approached right now is, uh, I believe, could cause massive environmental disruption because it's just a macro, it's a macro surface ship with seabed roving uh, machines that are just dragging, dragging across the seabed, churning up all sorts of ecosystem and the disruption is, is going to be massive. And we don't want to disrupt our ocean currents because that stuff is all super connected. So the, with the ability to have precise, intelligent machines, we can do laparoscopic mining, both in land and uh, on, under the seabeds. Very clean, very environmentally friendly, no open pit. And this is, this is a revolution both in environmental and cost capability. So that's why I think the, um, uh, our anchor contracts um, were so 
uh, enamored with this. So we managed to strike some great arrangements where we um, we got full development contracts. We keep all the IP, and we can span expand out to other sectors freely. That's really smart. Well yeah. done. Well Thanks. done. And was that when you created the uh, agreements with the partners? Was that something that you put together? Did you have a great legal team? Describe your team and the type of people that you're working with right now. So the the founding team of Offworld is the the, the best team on the planet. I mean, uh, w- without question. How many people uh, do you have on your team right now? So in, in the company, we're about 25 people now. So still a small concern. We have uh, 12,000 square feet of labs in Pasadena. But our founding team is incredible. And, and, and the leadership that we have now, I mean, Alethea Cavalaz uh, is our CTO. Uh, she, she is basically the programmatic backbone of the company and keeps this, this whole ship running uh, super tightly. Uh, James Murray, he did his PhD on the Skylon propulsion system, the single-stage turbo engine. There isn't a technical problem he can't solve. Mm-hmm. And Mark Knoll, who was 25 years at NASA, as basically our chief strategic officer has been able to thread the entire strategic gamut of what we're doing across entire program from the very farthest vision to what needs to be implemented initially. And, you know, in terms of arranging, arranging these agreements, I mean, my uh, chief operations officer, Josh Eisenberg, and I uh, negotiated these agreements. And it was really down to Josh's uh, amazing skills in, in the legal field and in operational uh, management that allowed us to get a super win-win. I mean, these mining companies, this mining company has got the kind of deal that they can, they can only dream of. I mean, however much it costs them to put that wager on this potential prospect, it's a drop in the ocean to what they're losing just by conventional mining. But for us, it liberates a whole amount of capital to, to expand forward. And, and, and we're now expanding our customer base uh, we're actually going out now for um, equity financing to accelerate the platform build even further and to grow faster. We want to become the biggest, strongest industrial robotics company in the world. It just makes sense, especially when you can pre-sell like that. It's brilliant. Yeah. So I'd like to wrap this up right now, but where can people find out more about you, the business, what you're doing, and just stay in the news mix of what's going on? That, fantastic. I mean, uh, check out offworld.ai. And by all means, feel free to reach out to me directly at jim at caravalla.com. And um Happy to talk to anyone who's got great ideas or wants to get involved and even wants to explore opportunities to uh, accelerate this uh, here on Earth and in space. It's great. What a great business. So thank you very much, Jim. Mike, thank you very much. A pleasure. All right, that's it for this episode, but don't go anywhere because my co-host Dan Sullivan and I have a really easy ask for you. Will you open up your podcast app and give us a five-star review and leave a comment about what you love about it most? Dan and I read every review and it'll take less than a minute. And while you're at it, share this episode or tell someone about it because the best way to grow an audience is by word of mouth. Now, if you want detailed show notes, photos, links to all the cool stuff we talked about, or want to ask a question, have a show idea, or want to leave a voice message for Dan or me, just head over to capabilityamplifier.com for all this and lots of free goodies, including copies of our best-selling books. Now, this is Mike Koenigs, 
So on behalf of Dan and me, thanks for subscribing and listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.